University. I am your professor, David Kirk Philbin. We are trying to make the music biz better because we are your free advice, music biz 101 and more radio show and podcast. Along with me today, as always, he is my Siamese twin. His name is Dr. Esteban Marcone. Dr. Esteban Marcone. And how are you today, Mr. Phil? I have never been better. Boy. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. Christmas, birthdays. Yeah. This is it. This, this is, is it. The, Wedding. Peaked. I'm peaking right Children now. Children born. Mm-hmm. Boy. Being wow. on the radio with you, this is it. That's great. This is the Maximus. This right. is the uh, greatest. So how was your week? I had a really good week. Really? We've been writing our book together. Yes. Why don't you tell separately. everybody about your book and uh, about the book that we've been writing? Well, we are writing the sixth edition of my book, Managing Your Band. And I thought it would be nice to get a co-author since I did five editions alone. So I asked Dave to join me. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I did ask him to join me. And he's been writing diligently. And actually, we used a chapter in one of my classes last week that he wrote. And it was uh, very good. After I edited it, of course. <laughs> That's right. Only kidding. I didn't no. use verbs, and you're you're saying please use verbs when you write, and that's going to be a big help for me in the future. Ah, ah, yes. So what are we doing tonight? Well, it's funny. Speaking of verbs and writing, our guest is going to be an author. His name is Fred Goodman, mm. and he is the author of a number of books on the music business, Fortune's Fool. Also, The Mansion on the Hill, and the, the main book we're going to talk about, which is Alan Klein, The Man Who Bailed Out the Beatles, Made the Stones, and Transformed Rock and Roll. Right. And because of Alan, and we should, by the way, also introduce uh, Bianca Russo, who is our producer of the night. Bianca Russo. But speaking of Fred Goodman, who is an author, we have a wonderful, a fantastic student co-host who is a dual pop music and journalism major. And we thought it'd be great to have her here because she one day might put pen to paper. Her name is Brittany Lee. Her name is Brittany Lee, and it's always going to be. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to be here today and to be a part of this show with Fred Goodman, um, especially being that he is, well, wrote for New York Times and for the Rolling Stones magazine. So I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, it's good, it's good to have you. That, that was really good. By the way, everybody says hello to you back. Oh, okay. Everybody listening can sort of sense it. Um, for those of you, Fred's just about to join us. Go to musicbiz101wp.com. That way you can sign up for a newsletter, which lets you know every week who our guests are going to be. It also tells you about our podcasts, which are available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes. And it, um, it also tells you about at MusicBiz101WP, which is our address on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And, of, of course, every Sunday at 6 p.m. on the dot, you get a newsletter that gives you an update on all the cool things going on in the biz. That, mm-hmm. that gets you up to date on everything. Next week, we have Joe Riccatelli, the GM of RCA Records. Two weeks after that, Linda Lawrence, the VP of CSAC. Mm-hmm. And we also want to give one quick thanks to the Music Biz Association. Save the date for May 16th through the 18th, 2016, when the Music Biz goes to Music Biz in the Music City. We will be at the Music Biz Convention in Nashville with a group of students. We'll be interviewing industry pros, making connections, and doing that learning thing with the kids. Yes. And now, without and it, now. and I don't know what without further ado is, but everybody says it. So yes. we're going to do the without further ado thing. We would like to introduce the author of all those books we mentioned, especially Alan Klein, the man who bailed out the Beatles, made the stones to transform rock and roll. His name, everybody, is Fred Goodman. And he's a good man. Fred Goodman. Fred. 
I'm here. There we go. Oh, Hello, great. Fred. <laughs> I'm Professor uh, Dave Philp. You may call me Professor David Kirkville if you like. We also have a student co-host, Brittany Lee, with us. And, okay. And Dr. Steve Marconi, who has used your books in class to teach from for years. So Steve is going to start us out. Wow. Okay. Yes. Great to meet you. Nice and, to be here. And uh, it's true. I read Mansion on the Hill and then had that as a required reading and then uh, Fortune's Fool. And at the time, that was also very topical. Uh, and then now we're just getting into, we haven't assigned this yet, but the <laughs> Alan Klein book. And I guess I'll start off by saying that the other two music business books that you've written were very topical at the time. Uh, you know, that nice rendition of, of everybody from um, what Alan, uh, Albert Grossman started and then what evolved and the Eagles and so on and so forth. And then the uh, Fortune's Fool, when Bronfman was the head of Warner and so on. And I, I read where um, Alan Klein's son contacted you, but, but I was just uh, wondering, did you have any hesitation? Because he certainly isn't topical today. And we, were in, we here were wondering that how many people in class would actually know the name. I mean, David and I knew the name, of course. Right. But did you feel at any point that maybe um, that was something that was, you know, not that interesting anymore? Well, you know, it interested me, <laughs> which is really kind of, as, as, as a writer, I, I, I really, it sounds silly, but I feel kind of like I have to write for myself in order to be interested in the subject. And that if I'm interested in it, you know, I, I believe in my ability to convince somebody that, you know, if they're interested enough in the subject, you know, to pick it up and open it up, you know, th that it's going to be worth their time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think the question you're raising, you know, I felt that it was kind of now or never, you know, mm -hmm. on Alan Klein, mm -hmm. uh, that, that you know, the, the day when people really didn't know who he was was fast approaching since he's he's been dead some years now, and he certainly hasn't been a factor in the business for quite some time. Uh, but he was one of those guys who, you know, like Albert Grossman, you know, w w was a real bellwether. And I f was also further persuaded as a reporter because, you know, basically the offer, offer was, would you like to, you know, have access to all the Beatles and Rolling Stones contracts and lawsuits and documents? Mm -hmm. You know, and to me, you know, that was the subject that was going to transcend the interest. You know, if you could get, you know, somebody said, Alan Klein, well, he worked with the Beatles and Rolling Stones, you know, and suddenly you're talking in great depth about, you know, the, these business decisions, uh, these sort of intraband squabbles, uh, you know, how business was conceived and done. And to me, it's like, well, everyone knows who the Beatles and Rolling Stones are if they don't know who Alan Klein was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the, the persuader to me. Right. So uh, when when I first think of Alan Klein, I think, I guess, uh, that he came out of the Morris Levy School of Music Business. But the way you tell the story, it, it's almost that um, he just had this drive and this drive from, from boyhood to be something and to be something uh, pretty big. And that seemed to be the thing that just was... Uh, an overwhelming, um, you know, force in his 
whole career. Well, he certainly has, you know, personality issues that are driving his career. You know, I, I mean, mm-hmm. you could certainly say the same thing about David Geffen or Barry Diller. Or, sure. You know, a, a lot of people. Uh, you know, Edgar Bronson, you know, in, in, in a different sort of way, yes. right? I mean, and there, there, there's this tremendous drive, I think, in the family to prove that they're not just, you know, mm-hmm. guys who inherited a lot of money, you know, mm-hmm. that they're going to prove their own medal, you know, and this has been, you know, for good and bad in that family. Right. Um, but, but you know, again, there is this sort of sense that, uh, yeah, you, you know, Klein is a very unusual guy. Uh, he has his years in, in an orphanage really shape him. He has a sort of loveless relationship with his father that, that solidifies this chip on his shoulder. And, uh, you know, these issues are all carried forward in his personal and professional life. And he's a very, very driven guy. Um, so that that is true. But, you know, he was uh, – he, he, he gets, I think, in some ways a deserved infamy, you know, because certainly I wouldn't have wanted him to be my business manager. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he, he was brilliant. And, and you know, I, I say I'd much rather have had him as a friend and an advisor than as my business manager, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, because what he saw he was quite brilliant. But I don't think he always gave people what they were entitled to in terms of, you know, open advice. You know, well, uh, of course. Uh, to me, to me, the great thing is, you know, and, and I'm, I'm kind of projecting, but, you know, Klein was a great salesman. He sold himself to exactly, all the clients, yeah. you know. And it's very easy to envision what the situation is, you know, in, in 1964, you know, when the business is nowhere as big as it is now, you know, and, and a 21-year-old Mick Jagger or Keith Richards, you know, will say to, you know, Alan Klein as he's interviewing for the job, Alan will say, what do you want? You know, and, and they will think of the biggest number they can. Mm-hmm. Which which was probably a million dollars, right. you know, a, a figure they make in a day now, right. you know, playing a stadium, and and you know, Alan Klein would say, "I'll get you a million dollars." When when really, if he was truly their financial advisor, he would say that's the wrong thing to ask for, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So everybody's very happy at first because they can't believe somebody's going to get them a million dollars. You know, it's only a few years down the line that it occurs to them that that was silly. Yeah, you know that that it's growing so fast, and what they really needed was somebody to say no. What you should ask for is control of your career, right. you know, control of your financial destiny. Sure, don't ask sure. for a set figure. Yeah, I mean he he did, he did what almost any businessman would do, and that is that he would say that I can guarantee you X percent. I can guarantee. Well, he's certainly doing exactly what the labels are doing. Right. I mean, that's kind of the irony of it, you know. Exactly. I, I, I mean, and, and if, if you're like me, you know, it's like one of the, one of the analogies that occurred to me was, well, I'm a homeowner, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when I went to the bank and I said, would you write me a mortgage? They said, sure. They didn't tell me all the ways they were going to make money off my mortgage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's kind of the deal with, with the financial management of artists at that point. Sure. You know, they don't tell you how they're going to make their peace. They just, you know, tell you, this is what I can get you when you go, gee, that's great. Right. And didn't, that's right, because he didn't really do anything illegal if he wasn't the business manager. Well, that's right. I mean, he's doing things that are, you know, not not of the highest ethical order. Of course. You know, but but again, you know, he's giving them so much more money than their record companies are giving them. 
And and we should back up a minute and say the publishing deal that the Rolling Stones complained about for years is so much better than the deal Dick James gave the Beatles. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a very good deal by the time. And, you know, there's an argument that it might even be better than the deal they made for themselves with EMI afterwards. Mm-hmm. 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 For our listeners that don't know, we, we, we are just um, sort of talking about that if um, someone came in and said, I can get you 6% and you're only making 3%, and then they make 10% and keep another 4 that that sort of is unethical. But if they weren't a business manager and just person doing business with you, that's that's the way business is done. Right. Uh, that's so, correct. And certainly, you know, look, one of the fascinating things to me is, you know, I mean, Klein is credited as the guy who, you know, look, he wound up with the Rolling Stones recordings. Mm-hmm. Well, he wound up with them by buying out Andrew Lou Goldham's stake. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and it's really kind of fascinating because, you know, in, in the world of sort of, you know, rock hipness, I mean, Andrew Oldham is a very hip guy and Alan Klein is not. Right. You know, right. but but the deal Andrew wrote for the Stones was so bad, Alan made him give some of it back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Alan then went ahead and um, manufactured the records. That's right. He, he well, well, this was the thing he was building into his deals, because if you see, one of the fascinating things to me in researching it and trying to put this together is, you know, I had to sit down with so many documents. I mean, it was literally, there were skids full of documents to go through. And they, you had these transcripts of conversation with Alan where he would tell stories, but you didn't really know when things took place. So I had to go back through all these years' worth of documents and sort of assemble, okay, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that emerges is that every time Alan does a contract negotiation or a deal, he tries to add in onto the last deal and like extend it further. And of course, this is something that continues to happen. When I was doing the Bronfman book, it was very fascinating to see that uh, as Atlantic was started to negotiate 360 deals with artists, every time they'd do something, they'd ask for something else. Mm-hmm. You know, if they got something in one negotiation, they'd keep that in and ask for more the next time. Mm-hmm. You know, and this was kind of the same way with Alan. He would see a thing and he would tease it in a certain way, and he'd try to expand it. And you see it go, you know, on and on like that as as you're going through these deals, you know, and, and seeing how he's developing these things. So th- there was a lot of that, you know, this sort of inventing things that haven't been done before. And, and that is kind of the part that he hasn't gotten a fair shake on. You know, he really does expand tremendously the money for the artists, the control of the work for the artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Explain, uh, Fred, about how, especially when you had this gruff New Yorker dealing with the sort of uh, English establishment at the time, for example, when he was negotiating maybe the Ray Davies contract for right. the Kinks or even mm-hmm. for the Rolling Stones, how um, the, what the perception of him was by the English record companies and how they dealt with him. Well, they hated him. I mean, you know, he was this obnoxious Jew from New York as far as they were concerned. You know, first of all, there there was, you know, sort of an old boys network built in, and and they were very old boys at places like DECA, uh, you know, and and EMI. Uh, And he was a real outsider, and, you know, he would literally be rude to them. I mean, he would be as rude as he could possibly be, you know, to put people on their back foot. 
Uh, and, and this worked pretty well at first, you know, because he would literally go in and, you know, say, look, you know, if you don't uh, give me what I want, this artist is never going to make another record for you. You know, and, and they'd say, well, that's crazy. You know, we have a contract. It's like, you may have a contract, you may not have a contract. He, w- he would basically tell them, you know, I'm going to show you that your contract's no good. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and take them all the way to the mat and do all sorts of things that no one had ever done before, you know. And and this worked well with the artists. They loved it, you know, that here's somebody putting the fear of God in my record company. Uh, and, it, and it was good at first, but, but later on, you know, when it started leaking into the press, you know, it was it was sort of became poison, and it was used against him, uh, particularly in in the uh, Beatles suit that Paul McCartney brought to to Ray Klein's management contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a number of tweets uh, that that we want to get to as well because uh, a bunch of students in advance uh, knew that we had you coming on. And there is one in particular that I think it would be good for right about now. And I'm okay. going to have uh, uh, Brittany Lee is going to read this one to you right now. So Zach Smith asks, in one sentence, how would you describe Alan Klein to those who have never heard of him before? Alan Klein was uh, a brash accountant turned business manager who ushered in many of the modern contractual relationships in the music business. And if I could add a second, it would be that the record industry and many artists could probably use somebody like that right now to figure out how to get money off the Internet. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then a follow-up to that. Brielle asks, how did Alan Klein change the music industry the most? I, I think, as we mentioned a little earlier, you know, I think he did the most to expand, you know, artist control over their own work and their own careers, and to change the financial equation between the record companies and the artists. You know, when when he comes in and starts working with Mickey Most, who was a producer who worked with the Animals and Herman's Hermits, and uh, you know, later with Donovan and. Lulu and a lot of Jeff Beck, a lot of people. Um, you know, Mickey was successful as a producer, but his contracts were not good. And he, you know, in his dealings with Mickey, said, "Look, you know, the record company makes dollars, and the artist and the producer makes cents. You know, we need to reverse this equation." And in fact, over the course of his career, he does reverse this equation. I mean, not to the point where the record company is making right. sense, but, you know, where, where the artist take gets up to a, a substantial place. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when the Beatles are at the height of their popularity, they are splitting, you know, a penny on a single four ways. <laughs> Do you think that he would have been as significant had he not had the artists he had? Well, you know, it's interesting. He, he starts doing it with Sam Cooke, who's right. the first artist that he has to manage. You know, and mm-hmm. he is hungry and is driven to succeed. And, you know, it's interesting. He, he only wants a particular kind of artist, right? He only wants an artist that's already established. Yes. Right? He's not in the business of making stars. He doesn't know much about it. What he knows, he's an accountant. Mm-hmm. You know, what he knows is contracts and how the money is made and how it's hidden 
and how to ask for more of it. You know, and in order to do that, you have to have an artist that's making money but not being paid properly. Yeah, exactly. So he was, I mean, you're, you're sort of answering the question that he only looked at artists that were established and successful. Right, uh, but and, 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 and it gets to the point in. where, you know, I mean, certainly he's got the biggest artists in the world. Exactly. I mean, the, the notion today that somebody managed the Rolling Stones and the Beatles simultaneously, you know, it's mind-boggling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Maria asked, how did you go about researching for Alan Klein? Well, it was very interesting. I, I was asked if I was interested by his son, Jody Klein, who runs the company Alan founded, Abco, uh, and, and said, look, you know, um, my dad died a few years ago. Many things were said about them. Some of them were true and some of them were not. You know, you, you obviously have an interest in the business. You've covered it a long time. If you would be interested, you know, in seeing what we have and making up your own mind, you know, we would give you total access to everything we have, you know, all, all our records, all the lawsuits, all the contracts, you know, all the correspondence back and forth, um, and we would maintain no editorial control. And in fact, they were, they were very good to their word. Jody Klein did not even see this book until it was in print. Mm. Okay, so they, they were totally great about that stuff. Uh, and, and as I said to me, you know, the notion of somebody saying, would you like to read the Beatles contracts? Would, would you like to hear what the Beatles said when they were alone and talking about money, you know, and what to do in their careers? I mean, this to me as a business reporter is kind of like the Holy Grail. It's, right, it's a right. school nobody goes to, right? Right. Right. So, so, did, so that was it. So did, um, did John Lennon and him have a falling out? They, they have falling out and they have makeups. You know, I mean, they're, they're, I think in, Alan, you know, really fell in love with, with two artists, Sam Cooke and John Lennon, mm-hmm. you know. And he didn't really, you know, he and Mick Jagger didn't get along too good. Uh, you know, he, he later kind of soured on George Harrison. But, you know, I think until the day John Lennon was killed, you know, Alan harbored a hope that he would someday, you know, be doing business again with John Lennon, mm-hmm. you know. And, and interestingly to me, uh, I used to be a reporter at Rolling Stone, and, you know, the founder and publisher of the magazine, Jan Wenner, is very close to Yoko Ono, you know. And yeah. I had asked him, a, you know, a bit about Alan and having dealt with Alan over the years, and he said, you know, oh, you know, his, his relationship with Yoko, you know, that friendship is real. He says, I can't tell you how many times I've seen Alan at Yoko's apartment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is fascinating, even after, and there's this, you know, awful moment in the book, you know, where after Lennon is killed, he goes to pay his respects to Yoko, and she says, it should have been you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and Alan, you know, can get past this. Mm-hmm. You know, partly because he recognizes her grief, but partly because he's Alan Klein and can't let go of the notion that he's going to work with Yoko again someday. Mm-hmm. And did, so did you get to interview Yoko? How did you get that quote? I, I did not get to interview Yoko. That quote is from Alan. Alan did about 40 hours of taped interviews uh, in the last couple of years of his life that were never published where he talked at length about his relationships with people, and that was sort of the primary source of any quotes from Alan. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And were those interviews with uh, 
was he going to do a memoir at the time? What was his? Well, they weren't really sure. There's a there's a fellow named Bill Flanagan who you may know, who mm-hmm. was a MTV executive for many years. Right. He used to be an editor of Musician Magazine, and at one point he was doing a novel about the music business, and he had an idea for a lawyer and thought that Alan Klein might be a good model for this lawyer. So he wound up having a lot of lunches with Alan, and the deal was that they would just tape the conversations, and you know Bill could take away whatever he wanted and use it in a sort of fictional way, you know, and, and Abco would keep these recordings and maybe someday they would do a project with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, did Paul McCartney not like him from the very start or was it just he was being pulled by his in-laws at the... Or I, I think he didn't like him from the start and certainly, you know, I mean, Alan and the Eastmans didn't like each other, sure. you know, and, and they're pulling at each other, you know, immediately for control of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's this gulf, you know, that's growing between Lennon and McCartney. You know, it's already started before the Eastmans get there, before the Kleins get there. And, but the presence of those additional parties are only pulling the gulf wider and wider. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Alan does not, you know, for all the research Alan did before he became the Beatles manager, and really he spent years trying to become the Beatles manager and knew everything there was to know about them, he thought. I don't think he even appreciated, you know, how deep the rift was or that, you know, in managing the Beatles, you know, he was really just going to be John Lennon's regent in the divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I just spent about a year uh, writing a whole research paper about the Beatles right before Alan Klein came in when they managed themselves between right. Brian Epstein and Alan Klein. And while... The popular notion is that Yoko is the one who broke up the Beatles. It really seems that it had been coming since 67 and that almost, you know, 18, 19 month period when they managed themselves was really the uh, the starting point, you know, that really got them going. And then when Klein came in, just like you said, he was really managing the breakup of the Beatles as opposed to managing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't really see him as an agent of the breakup. I mean, obviously, you know, he he and he and the Eastman's are not helping things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think Klein, one where, place where he does get short shrift, you know, is that he did a lot of things to put the Beatles on a much better financial footing. I mean, Apple, you know, I don't have to tell you what a sinkhole that was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's like, who's going to break up Apple? You're going to have to be the most unpopular man in the world to break up Apple. Mm-hmm. Well, Alan will take that job on in a heartbeat. You know, so so he does those things for them. Uh, you know, the whole Let It Be project is really Alan trying to devise a way to get them paid. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and it works. You know, at, at a moment where the Beatles don't have a lot of money, they make $8 million in a month on the release of Let It Be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so he, he's trying to do things and to prove to them that they have done the right thing. You know, and even when they split this really, you know, I mean, McCartney raises some issues in court, sort of tarring Klein, but the others stay with him after the lawsuit. You know, they don't leave him over the lawsuit. You know, they leave him because he won't settle it, you know, and and make it go away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's really interesting. They never really lose faith in him over an issue of managing their money. Of course, later on, when they have to, you know, split with Klein and settle what they owe him, you know, nobody likes to write a check. You know, then there's some grumbling. Now, Mick uh, was jealous when he was. I mean, you tell that story about Shea Stadium and and so on. He was jealous that Alan was going after the Beatles. Or well, he wasn't happy about that. But you know, it's interesting. I mean, 
one of the more fascinating things is where, you know, Klein notices that the Stones are not enthralled to the Beatles at all, that they're not particularly impressed with the fact that the Beatles are playing Shea, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you have to say that the Rolling Stones really see the target, and they see they can get there, too. Mm-hmm. You know, so so that was kind of fascinating, but it, I think, yes, you know, if 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 you are the Rolling Stones, you know, you've spent so many years being second to the Beatles, you know, and now your management company is working with the Beatles. I mean, why would you stay there? You know, you're obviously not going to get the same attention. So, you know, and and Klein, I don't think he cares. You know, I don't mm. think managing the Rolling Stones meant nearly as much to him as managing the Beatles. Right. And he probably would have kept their manufacturing of their albums anyway that he was doing. Well, you know, he, he was entitled to keep it, yes. Yeah. But, you know, this was the point I was going to say a little earlier, which is he had built that kind of clause into Mickey Most's contract. Mm-hmm. You know, he does it with the Rolling Stones after, you know, and that was the notion of, like, every time he does a contract, he adds on. You know, with Mickey Most, the deal had been, you know, if you, you know, I'll find you a million dollars, and if I find you a million dollars, you'll make me your American business manager, and you won't even have to pay me. I'll find a way for the record company to pay me. Mm. And the way he finds for the record company to pay them is he assumes the pressing responsibilities. He gets paid, you know, like 25 cents an album, you know, to press these records, right? right? So. Mickey's delighted because he wasn't going to get that money anyhow, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Rolling Stones are not so delighted because eventually they could see that they could figure out a way to do it, too. The business has changed that much. But they're not unhappy at first, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I had a real sense in going through, you know, all the lawsuits that at the time the Rolling Stones, you know, start bringing up these charges, they're really bringing them up as a way to see how much money they can get out of Allen as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, they were going to go do their French residency for exile on Main Street. They would take the dropout year, and they wanted to get as much income as they could in that year. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Explain what Alan Klein was doing with the money when he would get, for example, a million dollars for the Rolling Stones or, or another band uh, from the record company. How he would not give that directly to the band, how he would break that up and why he would break that up to them. Right. Well, this is really an interesting thing, and and it's a little technical, but bear with me for a second. (laughs) Back in in this period, at the beginning of the British invasion that we're talking about, Britain had particularly onerous tax laws specifically regarding income earned overseas. And Klein found out about this because he negotiated a deal for the Dave Clark Five in America. And the Dave Clark Five were doing pretty good. They were supposed to get $250,000, which was a good sum of money. (laughs) But the problem was if they took it all in a lump sum, they would be taxed at 90%. Mm -hmm. So instead of getting $250,000, they'd only get to keep $25,000. But he found out that if you invested the money in America and took it out over a 20-year period, you could keep it all. So basically, he would say to everybody, and he did this with the Rolling Stones, too, he'd say, all right, look, you know, we're going to invest your money in America, you're going to take it out over a period of 20 years, and you'll get to keep it. So in the case of the Rolling Stones, that's like an American advance of, say, $750,000, and they get their $750,000. But the fact is, $750,000 invested over 20 years earns a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. And he didn't promise them the money earned on the investment. 
Right. He only promised them their $750,000. Right. So he would use this money in a variety of ways. He would keep the rest of the money that he earned. I mean, these are really the things where you go, oh, this is not right. But, of course, again, it comes down to that thing. The bank doesn't tell you how they're making money on your money. Mm-hmm. 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 And he eventually, uh, later in his life, did end up going to jail for a little while. Well, he went to jail, uh, you know, on, on, a, on a tax uh, issue having to do with selling Beatle promotion records, you know, w- w- which was certainly not a, the right thing to do. And uh, yet, at the same time, it's hard not to look at it and say this was a selective prosecution. This, as you have heard over the years, was a fairly widespread practice in the sure. record industry. Sure. You know, record companies sold promotion records all the time and created slush funds, and some executives pocketed the money, and a lot of things were done, you know, under this. And Allen is virtually the only guy ever prosecuted for this. Mm-hmm. And, and now Klein always maintained... And, and it's mentioned in the book, you know, that, that he believed the government was doing this in hopes that, you know, they would have him over a barrel and they could build some sort of, you know, maybe a drug case against the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this was really, but, you know, he wound up doing two months. So it wasn't, if that was really the case, that wasn't enough leverage to ask for anything. And you, you also, though, intimated that it kind of went back a, a, a few years maybe because he had done uh, – he had made an IRS agent wait. Yeah, yeah he, he would do dumb things, right. Alan. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he was a guy who, like, believed, first of all, that he, he, he would never lose anything. He loved to go to court, you know, and, and, and he loved to fight, and he always believed he could, you know, outthink somebody and outbully somebody, and usually he could. But, but, you know, the IRS proved to be a bad opponent to take <laughs> on, and he had just simply failed to file some papers and he didn't want to deal with the IRS. He thought it was unpleasant, and he put them off and put them off. And he, you know, basically got into a pissing contest with them, which, you know, he can't possibly win. Mm-hmm. I mean, it also hurt him in the Beatles suit because, you know, in this other, you know, non-filing thing, he was cited as having, you know, failed to pay taxes. And they used this against him in the Beatles case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so these were all problems he created for himself. Yeah. We, um... A lot of our listeners are DIY artists and, you know, a lot of uh, students of the industry and people uh, on the lower end of the of the feeding scale right now. And what would you say to students of the business and to new bands, unsigned artists, what would you say would be uh, some lessons that they should learn from the book and know about Alan Klein that they can learn from and, and not make the same mistakes well, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, w- one of the things is that, you know, you should really try and get some sort of sense, you know, of what the fair value, you know, of your work is. I mean, that's, that's Klein's lesson, both in terms of getting more money for his artists and keeping a lot of it for himself, right? I mean, he's, he's raising their notion of what they're worth, but he's not actually even raising it to the level that it can be. Uh, but if you're in this situation today, I mean, you know, you have to believe in the value of your own work. You know, people sign things away, and not just in Klein's case, you know, but you see it over and over and over again, you know, that people make deals. They believe that their careers will go on forever, uh, and and it's really sort of a dangerous game. Uh, you know, you really need people that you believe in 
from the get-go and that you can trust, and otherwise, you know, it's going to be a bad situation. And I think it's always important to to move with, you know, A, faith in yourself, you know, but B, as much knowledge of, you know, the state-of-the-art deals as you can. I mean, you know, read, look around you. You know, someone makes the point later on in the book that, you know, there couldn't be an Alan Klein today because, you know, now everybody knows, you know, how deals are made, the cat's out of the bag. And it's true. There is a lot of information out there, and you really have to avail yourself of it. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that question. Could he exist today in this, uh, you know, this climate that the uh, industry Well, you know, I, I really do hold out hope that someone will figure out, you know, how to protect artists better, you know, in this age. Uh, you know, because certainly... Alan added to the value of what artists do, and a lot of the air is out of that balloon in the last couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it still has value to people. You know, the the question is, of course, everybody's searching for, you know, how how do we get that value back, you know, into the marketplace? Yeah. Did you you say that in the book, I can't recall, did Irving Azoff know him? Yes. Irving, Irving Azoff did know Alan, liked Alan had negotiated with him uh, when Irving ran MCA Records, had negotiated a deal for Bobby Womack. Ah, yes. You know, and and, uh, thought a lot of him. And, you know, he had a marvelous take on him to me. You know, I mean, I I said, you know, so what did you think? And he said, you know, Alan really gave a damn about his artists. He really cared what happened to them. Mm -hmm. He said, did he take too big a piece? He says, personally, I don't know. He says, but... Back then, everybody took too big a piece. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any sense that Alan was doing things that Ahmed Erdogan didn't do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really. I mean, it's so fascinating to me. And, and I have all the respect in the world for what Ahmed Erdogan did at Atlantic Records. But I haven't forgotten that people sued him and the Rhythm and Blues Foundation was started because they systematically cheated artists. Yeah. Yeah. Yet, you know, this is the man enshrined in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at mm-hmm. the same time. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of, a lot of it comes down to, you know, well, you know, he really got under the skin of Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney, and that's not a good thing to do. I wonder how much different history's judgment would be without those two guys. In the yeah, yeah. So Bobby Mahoney asked, what was the most surprising thing you learned about Alan Klein in your research? You know, I think really his sort of voraciousness and his need for acceptance, you know, the personal things that that drove him. I mean, he really could not even be alone. Yeah. You know, there's a, a couple of very funny stories. I mean, you know, he had his nephew working with him, you know, and his nephew tells the story. His nephew was going to – Alan put his nephew through law school, who is now the attorney for ABCO. And, and you know, he's he's working there. He's sort of the house hippie at ABCO at the time and going to law school in Newark at night. And, and he has to go to class. And Alan goes, well, i gotta, I got to go out to the airport to fly to London. Why don't you drive with me in the limo? And when we're done, the limo driver will take you to class. And he says, okay. So he goes out to the airport with him. And Alan goes, walk me to the terminal. So he walks <laughs> right. up to the terminal. He gets into the gate. He makes him get on the plane with him because he doesn't want to be alone on a flight. And it isn't until he gets to his apartment in London eight hours later that he lets the guy go back to Newark. (laughs) You know, I mean, he literally could not be alone. Uh, When he went to jail, right, it was they had an ABCO office in London. 
and and it was kind of like a little bit of gallows humor that they're finally going to get a break because Alan would call every day and keep them on the phone for hours. And they said, well, you know, at least we'll get a little work done for two months. No, they gave Alan phone privileges. <laughs> you know, I mean, the guy was on the phone with his office every day from prison. You know, and he would just was kind of, you know, a little a little nutty. I mean, he really just couldn't be alone. Yeah, and that's from... You you sort of trace it back to the orphanage and yeah you know yeah the, he, he the really you know dead and he was in an orphanage you know yeah mm. um going back to 1988 because you also were a writer for Rolling Stone and you've written about the business side of music for that long from I I found you wrote about uh, a Mick Jagger lawsuit when he was sued for. Uh, just another night, a song you put out in eighty. Oh yeah, I, w- I went mm-hmm. to that court case up in uh, White Plains. Oh, okay, yeah, it was kind of interesting. And, and you've written about in '94 the Ticketmaster Pearl Jam, the the Who and the band and Dylan licensing mm-hmm. deals. You know, all this stuff since when is '88? That's uh, uh, twenty seven years. Well, and before that, I was at the trades. I worked at Cashbox and Billboard for years. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, what What is it about the music business that has always interested you? Well, you know, it's a really good question, and and it's kind of funny. I mean, when I was at Cashbox, um, I, I Cashbox was a place where people would bring bands all the time. You know, it was funny. Billboard was the big publication, but Billboard didn't want to talk to anybody. You know, back back then there was there was a, there were three trade magazines: mm-hmm. Billboard, Record World, and Cashbox. And the 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 joke in the record industry was, you know, the publicists used to tell this joke. You know, if you send a press release out. You know, they 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 uh, what, what was it? They print it the way the way you wrote it at Record World. They rewrite it as news at Cashbox, and they throw it in the garbage at Billboard. <laughs> uh, so I started Cashbox where we rewrote it, and we were always you know publicists liked Cashbox because every time they had a new band, we were happy to talk to them, and they'd bring them up to the office. And I met a lot of really interesting people that way and had a good time. But somewhere around the fiftieth interview. I noticed the guy standing against the wall in the back. And he was usually the smartest guy in the room, and he was usually the manager. And I started getting interested in, like, well, you know, what is the role of this guy? You know, because they bring something, too. And it was confirmed to me as I went over the years. I mean, at Rolling Stone, I met John Landau. He was Bruce Springsteen's manager at that point. You know, a very impressive guy. You know, or you would meet Paul McGinnis, who who managed you too. And he was also a very impressive guy and, you know, a one-fifth partner in the band with the band members. You know, so clearly this sense of, like, he's as much a part of the success as they are. Mm -hmm. You know, so it started changing, you know, my, my feeling about it. And by the time I got to Mansion on the Hill, you know, it had coalesced into this sort of point of view that, you know, where there are great records, there's a great artist. And where there's a great career, there's probably a great manager. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and what is the relationship between these two things? I mean, the irony, of course, at the end of the day in the Klein book is, you know, the great exception to this rule is Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mick Jagger, you know, has managed the Rolling Stones yeah. essentially for over thirty years, mm-hmm. and and extremely well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but 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 interestingly, can't seem to establish a solo career. Right. That he <laughs> <laughs> but when when did he take over? He, it's funny because you do talk in the book about 
Wow. Yeah, you know, when, when, the, when, when, yeah. Yeah, when, when yeah. Klein takes on the Beatles in 69, they say, well, we're going to continue with Klein for finances, you know, which they do for a little bit. He says, but we're not going to have a manager. They never replace Andrew Oldham and Eric, and Eric Easton. Yeah. You know, Klein is the financial manager, the guy who's making really the artistic and creative decisions, who's hiring Jimmy Miller, you know, who's figuring out when they're going to go on tour, who's, you know, it's Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you know they really enter a golden age at that period. Yeah. But interestingly, you also point out that it was Klein who pushed them to become songwriters. And, and well, and no, it's actually company. Oldham who pushes them to become songwriters. Yeah. Uh, you know, he 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 does that. But you know, he Klein, you know, is certainly giving them good advice about publishing. You know, he appreciated publishing. He became their publisher, and, you know, he gave them a very lucrative deal. You know, one, again, his nephew, the lawyer, tried to talk about him, saying, you know, well, are you going to give all this money to these guys who wrote one big hit, Satisfaction? Mm-hmm. Which was sort of, you know, their track record at that point. Yeah. Right. yeah. We have another tweet question for you. Okay. How can a writer manage to get a job with magazines like Rolling Stone? Popular magazines tend to get a ton of emails. Well, you know, I can tell you how I did it a long time ago. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I came to New York, you know, wanting to be a writer, and uh, I, I uh, went to work in, in what was then called a one-stop, which was a record wholesaler on 11th Avenue in Manhattan. And they would, you know, if there were independent record stores that, like, were too small to get direct service from the record companies, they would go through these wholesalers like, you know, one stops, and mm-hmm. I worked at those. You know, and, and and I got any job I could in the music business, and I worked at uh, Columbia University's radio station, even though I wasn't a student. I mean, I was just looking for ins. You know, and you work with people, and you'd go to gigs, and you try and figure it out. I mean, you know, the same as as ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I took my first job was uh, for a giveaway jazz magazine. You know, and. Uh, I remember one of the first pieces I wrote was, you know, asking uh, jazz musicians what the weirdest gig they ever played was, you know, and, and that was like one of the first things I did. And because I wrote a couple of those articles, I wound up getting a job as the jazz columnist for Cashbox. <laughs> and I was there a couple of months, and then the job became full-time. And and by the way, because I had worked in this one-stop, that helped too. You know, I knew something about the wholesale record business, and, you know, God bless him, the guy who interviewed me for my job, he was a record collector, and, and he said, oh, you work in a warehouse, what's the prefix on the Columbia Budget Series? <laughs> and I went, JFC, and he goes, okay, you're hired. Ah, that's great. You know, that's so great. It was, you, you never really kind of know. You know, and from Cashbox, you go to Billboard, and, you know, at Billboard, Rolling Stone approached me because, you know, I had a background as a business reporter, and they wanted more music business reporting in the magazine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's sort of the long story. Now, you know, at Rolling Stone, it was a little bit different, you know, because there they had internships, right, you know, which is sort of volunteered slavery. But, you know, the fact of the matter is interns do get hired from time to time. Yeah. By the way, just as an aside, because I used to work with uh, Polygram uh-huh. Records, and for A&M, which Polygram owned, the prefix was 75021. <laughs> so there we go. Trading the uh, the geek references. Do you simply write? I don't mean simply. Uh, is your sole purpose now writing books? Do you do freelance work as well? You know, I, I mostly do. I, I do books. I, if somebody asks me to do, you know, freelance, 
you know, I'll do it. But I don't seek it out at this point. You know, magazines are, I wouldn't say they're dying, but it's hard to find lucrative work. Yeah. You know, uh, so uh, I, I've concentrated on books over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, th- that said, I, I dream of other things, you know, short-form things, and I've got some things cooking now that, you know, I, I hope to do in a short form as well. Mm-hmm. How long but, did you know, take? it's very difficult because, you know, uh, magazines, certainly starting a magazine is suicide at, at this point. And, you know, the great thing we thought would be, you know, the Kindle singles, you know, has never really developed into a real marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't know what the future is, and 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 I'm I've got an idea, and you know, hopefully I'll be talking to you six months from now, saying this other wonderful thing will happen. So you know, I do like that, and I do miss it. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I learned so much. I mean, you know, the first issue of Rolling Stone I bought was the issue in which Jan Winter interviewed Bob Dylan. Mm. You know, and and it was just. God, the world was opening up. You know, it was so exciting to me, and and you know, and I miss that. Yeah, head shops and et cetera. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the great greatest lines anybody said to me when he was doing Mansion on the Hill, you know, and, and this really took me back. You know, I, I asked Paul Rothschild why the scene moved to Los Angeles, and he said because your boots didn't get all crapped up from the salt that they put down for the snow in New York. <laughs> Remember the salt stains on your fry boots. Yeah, sure. That's funny. Uh, how long did it take you to write the, the Alan Klein book? Uh, it was about uh, two and a half years. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I literally spent over a year just reading documents. Wow. You know, I mean, it was just scary to go through these things and try to figure it out. I mean, you know, it's so crazy. There was a 110-page analysis of the contracts of the Rolling Stones leading up to the first lawsuit written by their in-house attorney. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just like, oh, my God, you know, how are you going to wade through this stuff? You know, and you have to, I mean, Alan sued everybody in the world. There must have been 70 lawsuits, Mm -hmm. you know, and I only reported on, you know, maybe ten. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And, and and so, did you? Uh, who who was your publisher for the Alan Klein book? Uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. H- Houghton Mifflin. Okay. Did um, th- for th- so this took two and a half years. Did you get their um, their commitment at at the beginning? Did you? Ah, okay. Well, or? I'm happy to talk about this. I mean, look, you know, I don't do any books on spec. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I can't I can't you know work for a year or two not knowing if I'm going to get paid. I mean, financially, I just can't afford it. Right. Uh, so, yes, what you do is you write a proposal. And, you know, your agent then shops around your proposal. It's usually, I mean, my form of proposals, and one that I think works very well, is I just write a letter to my agent. You know, it might be 10 pages, it might be 30 pages, in which I say what I want to do and how I'm going to do it. I don't bother writing a sample. Mm-hmm. Because I'm an established writer, you know, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but but it's like, okay, you know, this is who Alan Klein was. This is what his relationship with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones was about. And this is what's going to be in the book, you know. And and then your agent shops it around, and you hopefully find you know more than one person who's interested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and there was a lot of interest in this book. Mm-hmm. You know, I got I got significant you know significant offers from three, four different publishers. 
And did you go to with the one with the most money, or were you thinking, no, it's not just about the money? It's the well, money you know, it's, it's not always about the money. Right. I mean, in, in this in this case, somebody offered a good deal more money than the other people. <laughs> so then you got to really go meet this guy and go, well, do I want to work with this person? Yeah. You know, or in fact, is there any reason I don't want to work with this person? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it, it, it was, you know, it turned out to be a good relationship. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I've had bad editors. This was a very good editor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. We have about 60 seconds left. Dr. Steve Marconi, do you have any final wrap-up questions you'd like to Yeah, do you uh, want to give us a teaser of what you're working on now? Well, you know, I can't really get into this other project I have. You know, I, I really, though, would love to write just a project about musicians that are not particularly well-known but that I love. You know, I've written so much about the business. I mean, I have a couple of artists uh, – you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the New Orleans pianist James Booker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he, he's one. Uh, there was a young artist who passed away who lived in Montreal named Lassa de Sella, who never achieved any kind of fame in the United States, but was a very significant artist. Uh, and and she and a couple of others, I would like to do books about people who I think were very artistic, but never got their due. Uh, and that's an incredibly uncommercial project. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Uh, I read the uh, Grill Markets, the 10... 10 oh, yes? What did you think? Um, I thought it was very, very interesting, and he was so esoteric. But after you, I read the chapter, then you go and listen to it again. Right. Uh, it made a lot of sense. Uh, and I thought it was actually a pretty interesting slant on the history of rock and roll in, in 10 records. Yeah, he, he, you know, he's an interesting guy, and you know, he yeah. certainly has a passion for it. Although, you know, I agree with you that he can be esoteric. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we do uh, need to wrap it up. One recommendation for you, by the way, uh, Fred, yeah. if you haven't read it, is uh, to read Stephen Witt's book, "How How Music Got Free." It's yeah, he liked it. I saw he was on with you guys a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, it was a really good book. It was a really well written, excellent book. book. Yes. You know, I'm glad to hear that because you know I read the excerpt in the New Yorker. Yes. And I was a little puzzled by it. Yeah. You know, because this whole notion of like the 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 CDs being stolen out of this pressing plant as sort of you know, my perception of what happened and what caused the problems in the industry were decidedly different. Yeah. So it kind of took me by surprise. Yeah, it was more of um uh, I I read it more of not that this was really the problem in the industry, but it was the way that particular problem started right right. Uh, and then he runs those three different stories the uh, um, Doug Morris story and then he runs the uh, invention story with the Germans and then this guy uh, Glover I think his name is mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's this interesting book the way he carries on those three stories right through to the end of the book right cool. well Fred cool. thank you so much for joining us on Music Biz it's been my yeah, pleasure and great. thank you for having me Yes, right. and we want to remind everybody the name of the most recent book we're talking about is Alan Klein, The Man Who Bailed Out the Beatles, Made the Stones, and Transformed Rock and Roll by Fred Goodman. Thank you very much, Fred Goodman. We will be in touch with you in the future. Thanks, guys. I Thanks. appreciate it. Thanks, Fred. We are going to a break, and we will be right back. Music Biz 101 and more. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. 
So, Dave, we're deep into the semester. How's it going? Great. You've been busy on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock? Yep. Co-hosting Music Biz 101 and more with you. Who have our guests been? Indie artist and alum Lauren Marsh, PR guru George Dassinger, Rosie Lopez, president of Tommy Boy Entertainment, and Adam Kornfeld, Rod Stewart's booking agent. I miss them. Is there any way I can still hear their words of wisdom? Sure. Every show becomes a podcast that you can hear on our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or on the Stitcher mobile app. And it's all free. Who's coming up next? Grammy-winning producer Harry Wanger, Warner VP Dan Goldberg, Sean Rosenberg, the engagement director at Huge. Oh, that's big. (laughs) I get it. The guests keep getting better and better. Our listeners, too. That's Music Biz 101 and more every Every Wednesday Wednesday at 8 p.m. Only on 88.7 WPSC Brave New Radio. David Kirkfield. <laughs> so we want to thank you all for listening. You have been listening to Music is 101 and more on Brave Radio 887.7 WPSC Campus. We've and next here. week? Next week we have Joe Riccatelli, GM. Yeah, an alum. And he is an alum, 1985, William Patterson University. Thank you so much. And as always, we say to you, howdy!